0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, I don't dance, but if I did, that music would have gotten me right there, Um, but I didn't. So my name is Ethan, as Elliot said, I'm the family pastor here, and today we're beginning this new series called Street Smart. And when we say that someone is street smart, what we mean by that is we mean that they know how to navigate their environment. They know how to navigate their environment successfully, not just in theory, but they can actually do that in practice. And the street smart, it's also often used kind of in contrast with book smart. You've got street smart and you've got book smart. And book smart, it implies knowledge, right? Book smart implies knowledge and that knowledge, it may or may not come with practical skill. And while book smart is something that you can measure on paper, you can take a test to measure, Book Smart. Really, the only proving ground of Street Smart is real life. And BookSmart and Street Smart, they can actually be a really good pair. It's nice to have those in tandem. When you've got both of those together, it can be really helpful to have theory and practice at the same time. But when you've got Book Smart without Street Smart, usually it's it's glaringly, if not painfully, <laughs> obvious to you and probably to everyone else. I remember an experience, I had an experience with this uh, right around the time that my first child was born. So before Millie, before Millie was born, I'd been to conferences on parenting. I had, you know, read through some of the books, some of the books that probably a lot of you have read before having kids. I'd talked to people, I'd gotten a lot of good advice. So basically, I was ready for this. It was kind of like, all right, bring it on. I'm ready, ready to be a dad. So I was ready for it, but I'll never forget this one scene that occurred just after, a few days after we had come home from the hospital with Millie, our, our firstborn. I remember I was sitting there on the couch, and in my, in my right arm, I've got Millie. I've got this five-day-old baby, little girl. And she is just, she, you know, she's hungry, but she's refusing to eat, which is totally illogical. <laughs> and, um, and she's screaming. And she's doing that scream, you know, like the little infant scream? They kind of grow up, infant scream, they grow out of it pretty quick. But she's doing that scream. And man, okay, so I've got her in my right arm. In my left arm, I've got my wife. So, baby, wife. Now, my wife, you know, she's understandably exhausted, right? She's exhausted, she just had a baby, and and she's sleep deprived, and she's sobbing. So, okay, so picture you've got... (laughs) And then you've got this. And then just picture me, I'm just wide-eyed and clueless in the middle, holding these two females. And I wish I had a picture to show you. I wish I could show you a picture of my face at that time, because if you looked at that picture, you would think, oh, that poor guy, he has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> he's in way over his head. And I was. I had, no I had no idea what I was doing. I vividly remember thinking, things just got real. This got real right now. And in that moment, I knew that I had a major gap between my head knowledge and then my practical ability to navigate my situation. And so, this, in this series, what we're really concerned with is we're concerned with practical ability to navigate life God's ways. So that's what we'll be looking at in this series. We're going to look at one of the most practical books in the Bible. As Elliot mentioned, we're going to be looking at the book of James. James, it was written in the first century by uh, James, who was actually Jesus' brother. It was written to a group of Christians, and I want to give you kind of a heads up as we head into this series. James is very direct. He, he tells it like it is. He's not the kind of guy to pull any punches. And he's also not above using sarcasm to make his point. So you'll notice that throughout the series. He's, he, he will use sarcasm if it's helpful. Um, and then when it comes to telling us what to do, he really doesn't beat around the bush at all. When it comes to telling us what to do, um, he, he goes right for it. There's 108 verses in the book of James. So it's a small book, only 108 verses. But in those 108 verses, there's 50 imperatives. So that means that uh, 50 times, so just under 50% of the verses in James, he's telling us something to do or to not do. But then practical as the book of James is, it's still a book, right? It's a book. So reading it and talking about it, it can only make us book smart. Street smarts, it's going to come when we put into practice that which we're reading about, that which we're talking about. So today's passage, we'll jump right in. It's James 1, 1 through 18, and the focus of this passage is how to handle tough times. James, he uh, introduces himself, he greets the Christians he's writing to, and then he just jumps right in with this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So right here in these first few verses, there are a couple things that stand out about trials in particular. First is that trials are a matter of when, not if. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And we know this. We know that we live in a when you meet trials kind of world, not a if you meet trials kind of world. And for me, just right off the bat, this is challenging. It's challenging because I often, I kind of find myself living as though my major goal is to live a trial-free life. Like, that's my top priority, to live a trial-free life. But James would say, he'd look at that and he would say, if your goal in life is to avoid trials, then, well, not only are you setting yourself up for disappointment, but you're actually setting the bar way too low. Not only are trials unavoidable in life, but God has much bigger plans for us than for you and for me to live trial-free lives. So that stands out. The second thing that stands out about trials is that they come in various kinds, like it says there. A trial, it could be a physical suffering. It could be maybe a a long-term pain or or a chronic illness. It could be staying up all night with a kid, with a sick kid, or something like that. It could be a temptation that you're wrestling with, maybe a long-term temptation, maybe an addiction. It could be an emotional wound. It could be a financial trial. A trial could be persecution for doing doing right and experiencing persecution from that. It could be a relational conflict, or it could be grieving the death of a loved one. So what James is doing here is he's deliberately leaving this open-ended. But there's one thing that all these types of trials have in common. What they have in common is that they test our faith, as he says. So if you're wondering if you're experiencing a trial, then you can ask yourself, is what I am experiencing testing my faith? Is it testing my faithfulness to God or my devotion to God? And if the answer to that question is yes, then James is talking to you. He's talking about your situation. So trials we see here, they're an unavoidable part of life. They come in various kinds, and apparently what we're supposed to do is count it all joy. So how does that work? What does that look like? Well he he goes on he says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so God's desired outcome from our trials is that we would be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing in other words God has a growth plan for your life and trials are a part of that plan. So if you are a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, then God will use the trials that you experience to do two things, to make you more like Jesus. That's the perfect and complete part. And then he'll use those trials to equip you. That's the lacking in nothing part that we read. And because trials represent God actively working in our lives, then we can count it all joy. So it looks like this. Here's kind of a picture of what it looks like. Trials lead to growth, lead to joy. So, God's perspective is that trials of various kinds, they hold potential for growth and for joy. However, we tend to respond to trials in ways that actually cause us to waste their potential for growth and joy. We miss out on the growth, we miss out on the joy because of our response. And so, why is that? Well, if you're paying attention to the verse, you might've noticed this, but there's actually a missing component here. The Missing component goes right in between trials and right in between growth. It's steadfastness. So it actually, this is the way it actually looks. It looks like this. Trials are an opportunity for steadfastness. And then steadfastness can lead to growth, can lead to joy. So what is steadfastness then? It's apparently key to this whole process. And so what is steadfastness? Well, it's similar to endurance, but it's also more than endurance. Steadfastness is, it's more like patient endurance. And there's a difference between, the difference between endurance and patient endurance, it shows up in our actions and our attitudes as we are enduring. If you've ever been on a road trip with toddlers or with preschoolers, then you know that there's a difference between endurance and patient endurance. So my family, we, we're often going up to San Francisco and back. My, my parents live up in the Bay Area, so we'll go up there and back pretty frequently. And so um, it's usually not the drive up that's a challenge, it's the drive back that's the big challenge. And so we'll do that from time to time. Technically, we have always endured in the sense that we have made it back to Huntington Beach alive. We all made it, we're not dead, we endured. So technically, we endured, but do we patiently endure? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. That's, that's really, patient endurance is a different matter. So it's one thing to just survive a trial, but steadfastness is about having actions and attitudes that honor God along the way. And it's failure to remain steadfast that will actually rob us of the growth and the joy that God has planned for us in the trials that we face. So it looks like this, we experience a trial, if we fail to remain steadfast, then we cut ourselves off from the growth and the joy that God has planned for us. So the question that we wanna ask ourselves then is how do we let steadfastness have its full effect? In other words, how do we take advantage of the tough times and not waste their potential for growth and for joy? Well, James, he gives us three things to do and to not do, to remain steadfast. The first is to take charge. Don't take charge, take orders. The first thing is don't take charge, take orders. Now, a function of trials is that they actually highlight our need for wisdom. So like me as a first-time father, we may think that we've got it all together. We may think we have all the wisdom that we need, but then when things get tough, we begin to see our deficit in wisdom, our lack of wisdom. So James actually anticipates this, and here's what he writes in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, because trials will expose your need for wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So this is actually really good news. This is very good news. God is promising right here to meet us where we are at in our trials and to give us the wisdom That we need. So it's good news, but there's a problem. And the problem is that we don't always like the wisdom that we receive from God. Sometimes God's wisdom, we get it, and it just makes perfect sense to us. It makes sense, we understand, we do it, and those times when it makes sense, it's just really easy to obey. But often, God's wisdom actually makes no sense at all to us. It's counterintuitive, maybe because it's difficult, or maybe because it involves too much risk. And so James, he gives this warning. He says, yes, ask for wisdom, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this double-minded man that we read about here, he is unwilling to take orders from God. That is, he is unwilling to see wisdom from God's word as authoritative in his life. He goes to the word, but he doesn't see it as having real and bearing real authority in his life. Instead of taking orders, he takes charge. He takes charge by kind of adopting this pick-and-choose attitude and this approach to God's word. He views God's word kind of like a buffet. He'll take this and that, but not that. That's his attitude to God's word, and this makes him unstable is the phrase that James uses. It makes him unstable. And unstable, well, that's the exact opposite of steady or steadfast that we're talking about. Unstable versus steady, complete opposites. The idea is that he is not anchored in God's word. He's not anchored in the wisdom of God's word. And so what he does is he drifts about, sometimes doing what God says, sometimes doing what makes sense to him, but always just kind of tossed about by the wind, and by the current. That's the picture that James is painting. And James says that if we're unwilling to take orders, that is to view God's word as authoritative in our lives, then it's actually unreasonable of us to expect our trials to result in growth and in joy. That's what James is saying. He says, for that, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The double minded man must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. So, the decision to choose my wisdom over God's wisdom is really a decision to not remain steadfast. It's a decision to not remain steadfast, and it's a decision then to cut myself off from the growth and the joy that God would gladly give me through that trial. So, then what does this look like in real life, just practically? An example would be let's say that you're experiencing a financial trial. And so what you do is you go to God's word and you look for wisdom on the topic of money. And God's word actually has a lot to say about money. So when you do that, you'll probably find a lot. And much of what you find will probably be actually pretty easy to agree with and apply. But then let's say that as you're doing that, it becomes clear that God is asking you to start tithing. Or let's say you're already tithing and God is asking you to be generous in ways that kind of go beyond the tithe. Well, now suddenly your wisdom and God's wisdom, well, they're at a crossroads. They're, they're now in conflict. And so now you need to decide am I going to do what it takes to figure out how to obey God in this situation, or am I going to just ignore the parts of His Word that I perceive as too challenging or too risky? And this doesn't just apply to financial trials, there are countless ways that God will use the trials that we experience to stretch our faith. It's very easy for us to sit in an armchair and just say, I trust God. That's easy, but that actually is not how we grow. It's when trusting God requires risk that we have a real opportunity for growth. So don't take charge, instead take orders. The next thing that we can do to remain steadfast is don't think small, Big. When trials come, it's very easy to go into tunnel vision, to just kind of focus in on that trial. Even small trials can cause us really to lose focus of the big picture. Uh, an example of this is, um, let's say you stub your pinky toe. You're walking through a dark room, and you stub your pinky toe on a piece of furniture in the night. When you stub your pinky toe, you're not thinking about your responsibilities. You're not thinking about your upcoming vacation and how excited you are for that. No, when you stub your pinky toe, what does your whole world become about? When you stub your pinky toe, your whole world is consumed by your little toe. That that little guy right there demands all of your attention. And so trials, whether small trials or whether big trials, they tend to consume all of our attention and all of our focus. And to a degree, this makes sense and, and it's valid. God never asks us to deny our trials or to pretend like our trials don't exist. But it's a problem if we never take a step back and begin to look at our pictures, or, or, our trials in a larger context. It's a, it's a problem because God intends for us to grow from our trials, not to fixate on them. And we're, we are prone to fixate on our trials because we tend to evaluate them using what I'll call small picture criteria That's kind of the lens through which we view our trials. So by by that, I mean we evaluate our lives and really the lives of others around us based on present circumstances. So if we see one person who is in good circumstances and then another person who we'd say, well, they have bad circumstances, then we'd say that the one in, in good circumstances has more cause for joy than the other one. And if somehow their fortunes are reversed, then we'd say, okay, well, now their cause for joy is reversed as well. And the Christians that James is writing to, they were prone to this same type of thinking. And so, listen to what James says to them. He reminds them that God has a much bigger picture, and and in God's eyes, there's a lot more going on. He says in verse 9, let the lowly brother, that is, the poor circumstances, boast in his exaltation, and let the rich, in good circumstances, boast. In his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. So translation here, don't get caught up on your circumstances because we're all going to die. Thank you, James. (laughs) I appreciate that. Not exactly the encouragement that we were hoping for. But what's he doing here? Is he just trying to depress us? No, there's a lot more going on. James wants us to stop thinking small picture, and he wants us to start thinking big picture. In in our eyes, death, that's the worst disaster of all. That's the worst thing that we can imagine. And really, many, if you think about it, many of our greatest trials, they kind of boil down to the fact that our bodies, they seem to start off fresh and fit, but then... Time reveals that they're actually fading and they're actually fragile. And so, James is describing our worst possible circumstance here. And it's actually a circumstance that we're all going to experience. Our bodies and the bodies of those that we love are going to break down and they're going to perish. We are like the grass that withers, we're like the grass whose flower falls, whose beauty perishes, James says. And if we all share this same fate, then it's not the wealthy, it's not those in good circumstances who are better off. Instead, it's those who remain steadfast under trial. Verse 12, blessed is the man, not who has great circumstances, but blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the distinguishing factor here that makes one blessed isn't circumstances, it's steadfastness. And not a temporary, short-term steadfastness. He's talking about a steadfastness really over the long haul. He uses the word crown here. The word crown, this is a reference to an athlete who finishes a race and then receives a laurel or, or a crown after finishing. And James calls it a crown of life meaning that it goes to the one who finishes life having remained steadfast under various trials. So what he's talking about here is an eternal reward in heaven, and this is God's big picture. When we think big picture, we think, what, maybe years, or we think in decades. In God's big picture, it actually doesn't stop at the end of our lifetime. God's big picture move, moves beyond the limits of our lifetime and goes off into eternity. And this is very important for us to understand. If we miss this, we can very easily become disillusioned when, when our trials don't end when we think that they should. Sometimes God will draw kind of a finish line on our trials, or a particular trial that does end within our lifetime. And it's actually very common. Sometimes the finish line that God puts on our trials is just around the corner, and we don't even know it. But when we get in trouble is when we begin to draw our own finish lines. and We begin to say, this is when we think that our trial should end. This is the date by which this trial should be resolved and finished. And when we circle a date on our calendar by which we think that a trial should be resolved, and then that date comes and goes, it can be a real challenge to remain content. God doesn't operate on our timetable. And so when we draw a finish line and we hold him to it, we're playing God, and what we're doing is we're putting our steadfastness in jeopardy. And then with putting our steadfastness in jeopardy, we're also putting our growth and our joy in jeopardy at the same time. My wife and I, we experienced this recently. We had been praying for something in our life, something very specific, and it's a prayer where if it was answered, then it would relieve a trial that's been going on for us. And so we recently came to a spot where we realized we just had to decide, if this trial just never changes, if this doesn't change at all, will we be content? You know, we hope this is temporary, but if it's permanent, will we still be content? And we realized that if we focus on the small picture, what we'll do is we'll choose self-pity and we'll choose disappointment, especially if our timeline for that trial isn't met. But if we focus on the big picture, it's much easier for us to choose contentment. And so that's something that we're working on. We're working on, rather than feeling sorry for ourselves and counting down the days, instead, we're asking God to help us be content and count it all joy. So when trials come, don't think small. Don't get tunnel vision. Instead, think big. Look from God's perspective. Then the third thing that James tells us to do is don't blame God. Thank God. So the final section of this passage that we'll look at today, it deals with the relationship between trials and temptations. And it turns out that trials and temptations, they really go hand in hand, especially here in the book of James. In fact, they're so related that uh, the, the word in Greek that's translated trials and temptation, it's actually the same word, and it can go either way depending on the context. And so when we experience this kind of trial, temptation, combo, a very common response for us is to blame God. Blame God for what we are struggling with. But James, he knows this, he anticipates this, and his response is just very plainly. He says, don't do it. He says, don't go there. Here's what he says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God will permit trial in our life for good, but this is telling us he will not try to harm you by luring you into sin. Instead, we read that we are lured and enticed to sin by what? By our own desires. And so that means that regardless of how much pressure I'm under, regardless of how much temptation I'm experiencing, I'm still responsible for my sin, and I can't pawn that off on God. So what that looks like then is, um, well, let me go here. Far from being the source of temptation, this is something James wants us to understand. Far from being the source of temptation, God is actually the source of every good thing. Here's what he says in verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. And I think it's really interesting here that he uses the phrase, do not be deceived. I think it's interesting because a hallmark of someone who lack street smart, is that they're easily deceived, right? Is that they're, they're gullible. And so what we're doing when we allow ourselves to blame God is we're actually being easily deceived. We are becoming gullible. And so why would we allow ourselves to do that? Why would we allow ourselves to be deceived in that way? Well, it's actually not overly complicated. We want to sin. We don't want the blame for our sin. And so we think, that if God is tempting us, then he's at least partially to blame if we give in to the temptation that we're experiencing. So it looks like this. If I'm having trouble, marriage trouble, then, well, God now is partially to blame if I lust after other women. Or let's say I'm having financial trouble. Well, now God is partially to blame if I cheat on my taxes. Or maybe I'm having work trouble. Well, now God is partially to blame if I use that as an excuse to explode on my coworkers or my family. So then what do we do? What do we do instead if we find ourselves kind of playing this blame game with God? One of the quickest ways to shut down the blame game is to thank God, to thank him as the giver of every good and perfect gift, including the good that he does to us through the trials that we experience. I was, I was very specifically challenged in this a couple of years ago, the context was that I had been struggling with this uh, kind of mysterious pain in both of my feet, and I couldn't get a diagnosis for it, couldn't figure out what it was, and at first that was just odd, it was kind of kind of weird, but then as the months began to drag on, it moved from just odd to actually really discouraging. It was, it was keeping me from exercising, it was keeping me from doing basic chores, and what really was discouraging is it was keeping me from playing with my kids, carrying them, running around with them, and that kind of thing. So it wasn't the worst trial, but I did get really discouraged as a result of it. And at one point, I read this passage that we're talking about this morning. I read, I read James 1, and I realized that I was doing this. I was playing the blame game with God. I was grumbling against him because of the hand that he had dealt me. And then I was feeling justified if I was being harsh or irritable with those around me, namely my, my family. And blaming God, what it was doing is it was really cutting me off from steadfastness and therefore cutting me off from the growth and the joy that I really believe God had lined up for me in that situation. Uh, But my wife and I, we had heard of some friends a while back who, during a rough patch, they had decided that they were going to do what they called a James 1 party. So inspired by this passage, they did a James 1 party to kind of help them count it all joy and, and honestly, when I first heard of the idea, I thought, well, that's weird. <laughs> um, but now in this moment, my perspective was kind of changed. I knew that I needed, I knew I needed to do something to help adjust my attitude for what I was experiencing. And so what we did is we bought tacos, and we got ice cream, and we invited just a handful of friends to come over to our house and, and have a James One party with us. At the party, what we did is we shared a list of ways. I kind of made a list of ways that it seemed like God was using this trial to, to grow me. And, um, and so I shared those things and just thanked God for those things and asked our friends to come to the party and help us count it all joy. So after that, we just ate tacos, shout out to Del Taco, and had ice cream. Um, <clears throat> that day, it actually turned out to be a major turning point, uh, not, not in my recovery, but a major turning point in my steadfastness, and I was very grateful for that. Now, you don't need to throw a party to thank God. Uh, that may or may not be helpful. Uh, the point is that we made a list of ways that God was using our trial to, to help us grow, and we thanked him for that. We didn't pretend to know all the ways, all the details of how God was, was using that trial, but what we knew, we wrote down, and we thanked him. Now, if you sense that you are blaming God, you're playing this blame game with God for a trial or temptation that you are experiencing, then you may want to consider making your own list of things to thank God for. It seems counterintuitive, and you might not have any idea how to get started, but if that's true, you can ask God for wisdom. And he said that he will give us wisdom in our trials. But you can ask him for insight, you can see what he reveals, write it down, and thank him for it. God doesn't want us to waste the trials that we experience. He wants us to grow from them. He wants to use them to increase our joy. But he's not going to force that growth upon us. It requires that we actually partner with him. And we can do that by doing these things, by taking our orders from him, not taking charge, by thinking big picture, and by thanking him for what he's doing in our lives. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for how you use the trials in our lives to grow us and shape us, God. Uh, We can look back and we can see that you've done that and we trust you that you will continue to do that in the future, God. Thank you that you, um, that you don't leave us alone, that you walk through us with these things. And God, thank you that you are patient because we fail in many ways. And so God, we thank you that you come alongside us, you are patient with us and you help us to grow, God. Uh, we love you, and we are so grateful for the work that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.